And as we pick up our study today in the book of Exodus, things are at an impasse. Pharaoh is refusing to grant the Israelis temporary freedom in order to have the time to worship God. In fact, all Pharaoh has done is made their labor more intensive and more demanding. But now God is going to get very directly involved in the proceedings. He is going to hit Egypt with the famous 10 plagues in order to demonstrate his power and supremacy and force Egypt to release his people. But before we get into the text, I just want to briefly touch on the subject of symbolism in the 10 plagues, because there are a few different things going on that are potentially worth being aware of, and there's a lot of conversation about them. Firstly, as we've discussed previously, Israel's journey out of Egypt is a prophetic picture of what will happen to Israel in the end times, specifically in the tribulation. There are some similarities between specific plagues in the book of Exodus and some of the specific judgments that God pours out on the earth in the book of Revelation during the tribulation. However, they're not concrete enough to say in every instance, this plague lines up with this judgment, this plague, this judgment, and they're not in any cohesive order like that if you dig into it. So in my opinion, it's best to look at it broadly and understand that just as God used signs and wonders to judge Egypt and bring Israel to freedom, he will use signs and wonders to judge the world and bring Israel to freedom in the tribulation. That's the big takeaway you need to have. I don't know that there's a whole lot of insight to be gained by matching plagues with judgments. It might be interesting, but I don't think it's gonna change anything for you. If you wanna get into that, you can just Google plagues versus revelation and look at the Google image results and there's all kinds of charts that people have put together if you're curious about what the similarities are. Secondly, some scholars point out too that there's a sort of decreation taking place across the plague. So instead of creating order and life as God did at the beginning of Genesis when he made the universe, God in Exodus here is ordaining chaos and death. For example, instead of creating light as he did in Genesis, he is removing light here in the plagues of Exodus. And I think it's a good and true observation and the point is just that God is sovereign over creation. He can create, he can decreate, he can manipulate creation as he desires. He can instill order or he can release his hand and things will descend into chaos. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, he's completely in control. That's the real point. And that's even more important because of the Egyptian belief that we talked about before known as ma'at in ancient Egypt. Ma'at was the belief that there was a divinely orchestrated system of order. So the Egyptians believed that there were gods over all these different areas of life, over agriculture and nature and all of these things, and Ma'at was the title given to the entire system of order that made things work. Ma'at was why the Nile rose and descended at different times of year. Ma'at was why the seasonal rains came, why the harvest came, all of these things. And in Egyptian religious thinking, Pharaoh was over Ma'at. He was the one who held Ma'at together. He was the living incarnation of the god Horus, the son of Ra. And so this was an elevated position for Pharaoh. And what God is going to do through these plagues is he's going to absolutely toy with Ma'at absolutely play with it as he wants. And as he does that, he's going to show that there's nothing the Egyptian gods can do about it. There's nothing Pharaoh can do about it. He's going to reveal all of the Egyptian gods and Pharaoh to be completely impotent, to have no power at all, especially compared to him. He's gonna reveal that he's the one ultimately in charge of everything. And this ties into another theory which says that the plagues are, you might have heard of this, the plagues are each designed to target and humiliate a specific Egyptian god. They're supposed to each match up to an Egyptian god. And I think that's true 
in a broad sense, and I'll share one example in the message, but again, when you get up into the details, it doesn't line up perfectly enough for me to say this is definitely something that God meant to put in the Bible. But in the general sense, God certainly intends to humiliate the gods of Egypt through the plagues, and he's specifically, as I said, attacking their idea of ma'at. He's definitely going after that intentionally. So with that, let's get into the text. We're gonna get through a really good chunk today, out of character for me, but here we go. Verse 14, it says, so the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water, that would be the Nile, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod, the staff of Aaron, which was turned to a serpent, you shall take in your hand. And you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, let my people go that they may serve me or worship me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river." Then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water that they may become blood. The command there is that he's gonna lift his staff up once and it's gonna apply to all of these bodies of water. It's not like Aaron has to do the Nile and then run over to the next pond and do the next one and do, that's not what we're talking about. He lifts it up once and it applies to all the bodies of water. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He does it as Pharaoh and his servants are watching. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died, the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. And I think if you've heard this story before, obviously one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, the plagues of Egypt, but I think we miss how nightmarish and disturbing this would have actually been. I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine the, the horror as inevitably the Egyptians like ventured to taste a little bit of the water, which they would have done, and then realizing it's blood. Then you're standing at the bank of the Nile River and you realize this is an entire massive river as far as the eye can see and it's all blood. This would have been unbelievably disturbing to actually witness the sacred Nile River which was considered essentially to be a god unto itself to the Egyptians because it was their source of life was now a river of blood, a river of death. And we need to understand that these miracles were supernatural. They were acts of God they did not have naturalistic explanations. And those who attempt to provide naturalistic explanations do so because they want to create a version of the Bible and a version of Christianity that is void of any genuine supernatural activity. And people usually do that. So-called Christians usually do that because they want to create a faith that is more palatable to those who don't believe in the Bible. They think, I'll I'll be mocked a little bit less if I say I believe in a version of the Bible that doesn't really have any supernatural miracles in it. The problem with that is that the naturalistic explanations become increasingly implausible as we work our way through the plagues of Egypt. And by the 10th plague, it's absolutely impossible to ascribe any type of naturalistic explanation to what is documented in the book of Exodus. The text is also gonna give us clear indicators throughout each of these miracles that these are not natural phenomena. For example, if we look at this first miracle, take the first one here, you might have heard this. There are people who will say, well at a certain type of year, Jeff, the Nile would drop, the water would stop flowing as fast and there would be this reddish clay in the river that would be stirred up and the the river would become a, a red sort of color and it would become undrinkable because it was contaminated with all of this clay. And you go, hmm, that that sounds reasonable, actually. That sounds like a plausible explanation. Until you notice that in the text, God told Moses, there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, 
both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. You see, God said specifically, the book of Exodus says specifically that when this miracle happens, all the water in Egypt turned to blood, even the water that was already being stored in buckets and in pitchers. Now that is recorded in there, that detail, for only one reason. There's one reason why that's in the Bible to let us know that this was a supernatural plague and to force anyone who would want to posit a naturalistic explanation to be at odds with the text. That's the only reason that detail is in there because God said, if you wanna believe in a naturalistic expectation, you're going to have to take the stance that what the Bible says is not true. He's gonna make you make that choice. But you cannot say, I'm a Christian, I believe in the Bible, and I believe there's a natural explanation. It, it doesn't work with what the text actually says. I'd also point out, though, that if you read the text, it's saying that as Aaron holds up his staff, the river that Pharaoh and his colleagues are looking at turns to blood. The implication is while they're standing there, while they're looking at it, it turns to red quickly, in a matter of seconds. This isn't a gradual process. So a naturalistic explanation is not only gonna conflict with logic as we go through this, but it conflicts directly with the text. Just look at what the text says. So write this down. The text is clear that the plagues were supernatural events. They were supernatural events. The Bible really wants us to understand that here. Verse 22, then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. So the Egyptian magicians who work for Pharaoh, they do the same thing. They're like, oh, this is no big deal. Check this out. They got a bucket of water. They tap it, turns to blood. Now, where'd they get the bucket of water from? You might be wondering. Well, it's going to tell us in verse 24 that apparently they had to dig for it. Apparently, God made it to give the Egyptians some relief so that babies didn't die or anything like that. He he says that if they dig down deep and get water from digging into the ground, they could find clean water. But they had to work for it, and that's assumedly where the magicians got it from. But the real question isn't where, where did they get their water from or, or how did they do their miracle, as, as we've talked about before. The real question is, how is this helpful? How is this helpful in any way? What are we gonna do? Magicians, all the waters in Egypt has been turned to blood. Oh. We can do that too. We found this pitcher of clean water. Look, now it's blood. I was kind of thinking maybe you guys could, could turn the blood back into water. That would be a little bit more helpful. But that's always the way that it is with Satan's power. When you're tapped into Satan's power, all it does is make things worse. Deals with the devil never work out in your favor, ever. Satan's power is very, very real, and these magicians are tapped into it. That's how they're doing this. But it only ever makes things worse. It can't actually make anything better. God, on the other hand, is going to turn the water back from blood into water again to demonstrate that he has absolute control. He can do one or he can do the other, and the magicians just can't do that. Then we read this, Pharaoh's heart grew cold and he did not heed them. He didn't listen to Moses and Aaron, as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug around the river for water to drink because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. So for seven days, the Egyptians have to dig to get a drop of water. Pharaoh's stubbornness is really made evident here by the fact that he dismisses the plague apparently just because his magicians can also turn a bucket of water into blood. They can't solve the problem. Pharaoh can't solve the problem, but he still dismisses the evidence of God's power that's right in front of him. And Pharaoh's behavior, when you think about it, it doesn't seem to make sense until you realize things like people dismiss Christianity because they once met a Christian who was a jerk. People dismiss the whole Bible because they don't think it fits in with how they think the world should work. People dismiss the gospel for, for all kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with the most important question. The key question, the most important question, the only question concerning all philosophy, all religion, is the question, is it true? That's the only question that matters. Is it true? True. True. It's the question Pharaoh should have been answering. 
These guys are saying God is on their side. The question is, is it true? It's not, am I offended? Do I want to get on board with it? It's, is it true? Because when you don't want to believe the truth, you know this about yourself, there are a million different excuses you can come up with. It's amazing how creative we can be when we don't want to do something. The reason people reject the gospel is almost never because of a lack of evidence. It's a heart issue. Those who don't want to believe will not be able to see the evidence even when it's right in front of their eyes. But here's the lesson for us, write this down. A stubborn heart quickly becomes an irrational heart. A stubborn heart quickly becomes an irrational heart. And again, you've probably seen this in your own life and in yourself, if you're honest enough to reflect a little bit. When we're stubborn, when we, we dig our heels in, we, we quickly move toward irrationality. It happens very, very fast. And then eventually you reach that awful moment where you realize you've been irrational and you're like, oh no, how, how can I walk this back without having to actually concede that I've become completely irrational? And then, yeah, that's a challenge. There's a connection between humility and mental clarity. This is huge, life lesson. There's a connection between humility and mental clarity. And we're gonna see the more stubborn Pharaoh gets, the less clearly he is able to think and discern logically. Continuing right into chapter eight. And the Lord spoke to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. God ever uses the word smite with you in a sentence, you need to wake up and pay attention. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. And the frogs shall come up on you, on your people, and on all your servants. In Egyptian religious thinking, you might recall the, the god Kanum. Kanum's wife, who's known as Heket, was a human with a frog's head who would breathe life into the humans that Kanum would mold on his potter's wheel. She also protected frogs from crocodiles and was therefore credited with keeping them multiplying at just the right rate. They were important to Egyptians because they ate insects. But this plague is again going to show that it's, it's Yahweh who's in control, not Heket or any other Egyptian god. He's gonna make the frog situation completely out of control. Verse five, then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hands over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Now I don't know if you know this, but frogs are super gross. They are super gross. They are slimy, they make creepy noises and they just like poop everywhere and it's disgusting. And, and the land was just covered in these things. The land is covered in frogs and frog excrement. Just thinking about it is disturbing. So let's just take a minute and really ponder that. For No, we're not gonna do that. Just, it's just, it's so gross, it's so gross. And you know, frogs can, can become, the body can become up to a foot long. That can really happen in places like Egypt. This is just disturbing. Verse seven, and the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. That, that's great, guys. Thanks so much for helping again. We can make frogs too. You know, it would be great if, if you could get rid of some frogs. That would be a magic trick that Pharaoh would have enjoyed. And the frogs were so bad that, that even stubborn Pharaoh couldn't take it. In verse eight, we read, then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, entreat, which means pray to the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people and I will let the people go and they may sacrifice to the Lord. Pharaoh says, okay, 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 okay. you can go out into the wilderness and have your religious feast. Just go pray to your God and make the frogs stop. Verse nine, and Moses said to Pharaoh, accept the honor of saying when I shall intercede for you for your servants and for your people, to destroy the frogs from you and your houses, that they may remain in the river only. So Moses says, when do you want me to pray to God and ask this to stop, Pharaoh? Now the answer any sane person would expect is right now, right? 
Right now would be really, really good. But again, this is done to indicate that this is a supernatural event. Moses isn't taking advantage of some natural phenomenon. And to prove it, he lets Pharaoh determine when it's going to come to an end. Now notice this. Pharaoh's answer, one of the most unbelievable answers in all of scripture. When do you want me to get rid of the frogs, Pharaoh? Verse 10. So he, that's Pharaoh, said, and then underline his answer, tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. And we read this and we think, this Pharaoh is nuts. Why wouldn't he say right now? But we do the same thing. We do the same thing so easily. You know, we, we, we get involved with sin somehow in an area of our life. And we begin to experience the consequences of those sins. And, and we say, God, I, I just can't take this anymore. This is ruining my life. God, you gotta help me. And God says, I'm right here. Just turn to me, repent from your sin, walk away from that thing, walk away from that wrong relationship, turn from it, come to me and the healing process can begin. And we say, oh, thank you, Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna do that tomorrow. Tomorrow, I'm gonna do that tomorrow. Because we want one more night with the frogs. We're not quite ready to give up our sin because we still love it, despite the pain that it's bringing into our lives. Pharaoh is holding on to his pride. That's his major sin here. He doesn't wanna look too desperate. So out of pride, he says, oh, tomorrow, tomorrow is fine. You know, he's got like a frog like climbing on his shoulders. He says, It's fine, it's fine, tomorrow's good. This is no big deal. Lord, I know my internet porn viewing is out of control. I know I need to confess to my spouse. I know I need to get some accountability software on my computer, on my phone. I'm gonna gonna do it, Lord, tomorrow. I'm gonna do it tomorrow. Just just a little bit more, just one more time. Lord, I I know I should be putting you first in my finances and and, and I'm going to do it and then I might be getting a raise in a few months and, and, and then when I get it, then I'll start tithing. Lord, I, I know they're not a believer, but, but I feel like they could become one any day. I, I know I'm not meant to be in a relationship with them, so if they don't get saved in the next month, then, 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 then I'll end the relationship. It's so easy to be like Pharaoh. God illuminates a sin in our life. We know it's gotta go. We know it's gotta be dealt with. God says, hey, let me help you get rid of that thing. Let me help you find freedom and wholeness and healing. Tomorrow, just one more night with the frogs, just one more. So write this down, because this is what we should take from this. Delayed repentance, when we put off repentance, delayed repentance, reveals the grip that sin has on us. Delayed repentance reveals the grip that sin has on us. Classic addict behavior, right? I think you've got a problem. Why don't you get rid of all the alcohol in your home? Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Um, I'll do that soon. Do that soon. It's like that with any sin. Then we keep reading, and he, this is Moses, said, let it be according to your word. All right, if that's what you want. That you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Again, pick up that hint in there. Moses is saying, we'll do this when you asked me to do this so that you will know that it's God who's doing this. And the frogs shall depart from you, from your houses, from your servants, and from your people. They shall remain in the river only. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. Man, that's the reality of sin, isn't it? You can get rid of the sin, but it leaves a stink for a while. We've talked about this many, many times, that our sins have natural consequences. Man, God forgives us. The word says all sin is forgiven. God has forgotten it, he's forgiven it, we are right with him, but there are natural consequences that we still have to deal with in this life. There are people who will still be mad at you even if you tell them that God's forgiven you. There are taxes you will still have to pay if you haven't paid your taxes, even if you tell the CRA, well, God has forgiven me. It's not gonna work. There are natural consequences. And the longer we wait to deal with our sin, the worse the natural consequences will be. 
And if you ever want to make sin seem a whole lot less appealing, a lot less sexy, just think about the stink that it's going to cause. Think about the long-term consequences. Think about how long that stink is going to linger. Satan is all about living in the moment. He's all about living for right now because when you live that way and when he can get you and I to live that way, we don't think about the long-term consequences of our actions. But God says, hey, because I love you, I want what is best for you both now and in the future, so I'm gonna call you to live in a way that's gonna fulfill you and satisfy you the most in this life and in eternity. Satan just says, hey, just think about right now. Don't don't think about the long-term consequences. And God says, hey, I love you, so I gotta have you think about the long-term consequences because if you could see them, you'd be like, no, I'm good. Take the frogs now. Take them now. Verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. God relents and Pharaoh changes his mind about letting the Israelis go. He takes advantage of the mercy of God. Just like the man who was sliding off a high roof toward his death when he cried out to God, I'll serve you for the rest of my life if you'll save me. And then right near the edge of the roof, just before he slid off to his death, his pants caught on a nail, stopping his inevitable fall. And he said, oh, never mind God, the nail saved me. And if we're honest, we can all identify with desperately seeking God in a moment of crisis and then forsaking him as soon as he brings relief. Oh, oh, it's okay, God. They forgave me, we're good. Oh, it's okay, I got to keep my job. Oh, it's okay, it's okay. In fact, Israel will repeat this cycle for most of the Old Testament. They'll worship false gods, so God will discipline them, they'll be oppressed, they'll cry out for deliverance, God sends a deliverer who delivers them, and then they go back to worshiping false gods and the cycle goes on. That's the Old Testament in a nutshell, over and over and over and over again. That's the story of Israel in the Old Testament. And we so easily do the same thing. Pressure or difficulty comes into a certain area of our life. So we examine ourselves. We realize we're not doing things God's way in that area of life. We repent. We get right with God. There's healing. There's restoration. There's relief. And and what do we do much of the time? Well, we just go right back to not doing things God's way in that area of life. We delude ourselves, right? We're like, oh, well, there's relief, so... God must be saying that's okay for me to do that. And we take advantage of the mercy of God, just like Pharaoh. Oh, there's relief? Oh good, I don't actually have to change then. For a second there I thought I'd have to actually keep this up. Make a note of this, God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. It's not intended to give us relief so that we can continue sinning. God isn't looking at us saying, hey, I heard your cry and I know Man, you're really suffering because you're involved in that sin. Let me take away the consequences so that you can keep sinning. That's not what he's doing. He's being gracious. He's being merciful. In Romans 2.4, you know the verse. Paul challenges those who are taking advantage of the mercy of God. And he says, do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? He's saying you're hating the goodness of God. You're treating it that badly when you take advantage of it. He's being kind to you so that you'll repent, not so that you'll keep on sinning. Verse 16, third plague. So the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice or gnats throughout all the land of Egypt. Some of these plagues are so gross. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth and it became lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now according to Herodotus, Egyptian priests would shave their entire bodies every second day to prevent getting lice because lice were considered ceremonially unclean in the Egyptian religious system. So understand what God is doing with this plague. He's making the entire nation of Egypt ceremonially unclean, the whole nation. They can't offer sacrifices to their gods. 
They can't pray to their gods. They can't go into their holy sites or anything like that. There's not a priest who can work during this time. They can't do anything. They can't even call upon their gods because they're all ceremonially unclean. They're all infected with lice. And again, this is just a power play by God to show his supremacy to the Egyptians. Verse 18, now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. Things change here. And this actually proves that the magicians of Egypt, for all the previous miracles they did, were doing legitimate magic. Because producing lice would have surely been the easiest thing to fake so far, right? You just shove some up your coat sleeve and you're like, lice, shazam, and it's not that hard to do, right? This is the easiest one to duplicate and they can't do it because they were doing real magic and God has just decreed, yeah, that's enough of that. We're done now. And he just stops it cold. Then we read, so there were lice on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. So the Egyptian magicians, the mystics of Egypt, testify to Pharaoh, hey, hey, Pharaoh, here's the thing. This is a power issue. We're up against a power that's greater than the power that we're tapped into. It's greater than the power at work in Egypt. Whoever we're up against, he's the God of gods. And this brings glory to God to have the mystics of Egypt brought to the place where they confess to Pharaoh that Yahweh is greater than the gods of Egypt. And this is also going to mark the exit of the Egyptian magicians from our story because they're like, God is greater than whatever we're working with which means we're in danger of being killed by him or being killed by Pharaoh. And that's our cue to leave, see you later. And I'm sure they hop on their camels and ride off into the distance while they still have their heads. Then it says, but Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them just as the Lord had said. Verse 20, fourth plague. And the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water, to the Nile River. Then say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. Now the term flies could actually apply to all manner of flying insects. It could be as gross as your imagination is basically. But they're gonna be like, like a cloud in the air and all over the ground as well. Just disgusting. As I've mentioned, there, there are believers who wanna try and attribute these plagues to natural causes. But again, the text won't allow for that. There's no question, I'm sure, that, that Egyptians who didn't want to believe in the power of God, they were probably trying to find every explanation they could. Perhaps even Pharaoh said, oh, well, maybe this is, this is just some sort of trick. You know, maybe he said, I've, I've seen the Nile red before. I can't explain the blood part, but it's been red before, so, so maybe this is just a naturalistic thing. And so to prove his power to Pharaoh, to Egypt, and to those who would question this today, God says this in verse 22, have your pen ready. He says in that day, and then underline this, I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. And then underline this in verse 23, I will make a difference between my people and your people. So the Israelis were in Goshen, which is right smack in the middle of the Nile Delta in northern Egypt, and God says, they're not going to have any flies there, but the rest of Egypt will. I'm going to draw an invisible line of protection around my people so that there's no confusion about what's going on here. A naturalistic explanation simply doesn't work when you look at what the text says. God calls the exact time of the next plague then when he says, tomorrow, this sign shall be. It's going to happen tomorrow. And the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. Now remember, one of the layers of this story is that it serves as a prophetic picture of what's going to happen to Israel in the tribulation. They will be affected and troubled by some of the judgments that God is gonna pour out on the earth during the tribulation, just as the Israelis were affected by the first three plagues, the water turning to blood, the frogs, and the lice. But then at a certain point with this fourth plague, 
God begins to supernaturally protect them from his judgments. And this is what's gonna happen in the tribulation. The Bible tells us that two out of every three Jews is going to die during the tribulation. But then at a certain point, as Antichrist seeks to wipe them out, the Lord begins to supernaturally protect them and he can't touch them. God does things like raise up the 144,000 Jewish male missionaries who cannot be killed because the hand of God is upon them. That's another similarity, a parallel that's happening here. Verse 25, then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, go, sacrifice to your God. Now underline this, in the land, in the land. So Pharaoh says, have your religious feast, but have it here in Egypt. Just, Just stay here in Egypt. Remember, what does Egypt represent in our story? It represents the world. And this is still a favorite tactic of Satan's. He'll say, well, okay, okay, you wanna worship God. You're a Christian, okay, I, I get it. But hey, that, that, that doesn't mean that you have to leave the world. You can still fit in. You can still participate in, in, in all the things of the world. And you can still view the world as your home and still live for all the same things that the world lives for. You can worship God, but just do it, do it in the land. Do it in the world. Because once you belong to the Lord, Satan can't have you eternally. So his next goal becomes making you completely ineffective. He's doing damage control. He's saying, I want you to live a Christian life that doesn't have an effect on anybody. Doesn't affect your kids, doesn't affect your spouse, doesn't affect your coworkers or your classmates. I I just want to limit the damage. He wants to neutralize us and make us ineffective. So he says, just worship God, but just stay involved with the world. I heard someone once ask the, the question, if, if Christianity became illegal tomorrow and everyone was put on trial, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would anyone accuse you of being a Christian? Is there enough different about your life or w- would people say, him, her? No, they're just like everybody else. I don't know why you're bothering with them. There's nothing different about them. Satan says, hey, just because you want to worship God doesn't mean you have to be radical about it. Doesn't mean you have to go to the desert to worship him. You you can do it right here. You don't have to do everything the Bible says. Just just calm down. People are going to think you're weird. Verse 26, and Moses said, it is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us? We will go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will command us. What Moses is saying is, listen, Pharaoh, we're gonna be sacrificing some animals like sheep that you Egyptians think of as an abomination. And so if the Egyptians see us doing this, sacrificing animals that they think are an abomination, they're, they're gonna find this wildly offensive from a religious perspective and they're gonna riot and they're gonna try and kill us. They're gonna stone us. So we've gotta go do our ceremonies where we have these kinds of sacrifices. We gotta do it away from Egypt. Verse 28, so Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness only, and then underline this, you shall not go very far away. Intercede for me. Fine, you can go, but don't go too far. You don't, need to go, you don't need to go three days journey into the wilderness like your God has said. Just, just stay closer than that. Now get these freaking flies out of here. So once again, Satan says, fine, worship God. I get it, you're gonna worship God. I, I get it, you gotta go out of Egypt. You can't be fully in the world, okay? But you don't have to go all the way out into the wilderness. Just stay close to Egypt. Stay close to the world. You don't have to go all in like some crazy fundamentalist or something. Verse 29, then Moses said, indeed, I am going out from you and I will entreat the Lord, I will pray to the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart and then underline tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Do you catch that little burn? Because this time Moses doesn't give Pharaoh the choice of when it's gonna happen. He says, oh, I I assume you're cool, we'll do it tomorrow. We'll do it tomorrow, Pharaoh, since you were in no rush to repent last time. Then he says, but let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Pharaoh, no more tricks. Don't mess with God. I'm warning you. Verse 30, so Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. Wouldn't you know it? Pharaoh changes his mind. 
again, again. And next week we're gonna continue with plague number five. Just a couple of thoughts in closing for us. I trust that if there's something specific God wants you to hear from today's message, then the Holy Spirit is illuminating that point in your heart right now and has been doing so as we've been going through the word. James 4.4 4 says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Satan says, you can still live in the world and be a Christian, or at least live close to the world and be a Christian. But the reality is that being half-hearted about Jesus is a recipe for misery. Being a lukewarm Christian is the least satisfying way to live because you'll have too much of the world in you to enjoy Jesus and too much of Jesus in you to enjoy the world. Being a Christian means transferring your citizenship from earth to heaven. Saying earth is no longer my home, I'm a citizen of heaven. You're not an earthling anymore. You're a pilgrim here, you're a sojourner. You're passing through on your way to your final destination, which is heaven. So be radical for the Lord. Live wholeheartedly for him, be all in. And especially reject this idea that somehow as you get older, you're supposed to become less zealous for the Lord. It should be the complete opposite. The more you see of God, the more passionately you should love him, the more of him you should want. And living wholeheartedly for the Lord is the only place you find real peace and joy. Well, maybe you're here today or listening online or watching this online and you're in the place where you're saying, I know you want me to deal with that sin in my life, Lord, and I will tomorrow, tomorrow. I just gotta take care of some things first. Listen to me really carefully on this, please. Please hear me on this, church. What happened to Pharaoh while he was saying tomorrow, tomorrow? His heart grew harder and harder. And that's the problem. Every time we say no to the Holy Spirit, every time we, we tune him out, we do so under the assumption that we will hear him the same way tomorrow. We do so under the assumption there'll be another opportunity tomorrow, that our heart will be just as sensitive tomorrow as it is today. But that's not how it works. Our hearts grow hard as we say no to the Lord over and over and over. We get good at ignoring God, really good at it. And that means that things have to get even worse to get our attention. Because God's not gonna stop. He's a loving father. He's not gonna say, hey, uh, oh, never mind. He's gonna say, okay, what do I have to do to get through to him? What do I have to do to get through to her? That's a scary question. Every time we say no to the Lord, we're saying, hey, hey, the gentle word isn't gonna work, Lord. The gentle invitation isn't gonna work. And you're asking God the question, what are you gonna have to do to get my attention, God? And God says, you gotta know something because I love you, all options are on the table. All options are on the table. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes. That's why when you pray for someone who is wandering from the Lord, it's a terrifying prayer to pray, but it's the right prayer to pray. This is how I pray for my own kids. Lord, just let them reach that point quickly. Whatever you gotta do, just get them there quick. Please don't, don't let it be a years down spiral. Whatever you gotta do, get them there quick. Don't wait. The Bible says today, if you hear his voice, today if you'll hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't assume it'll be the same tomorrow. Do business with God today. Repent today. Make the change today. You know, most of us know this analogy, but it's a true fact. It really is. If you put a frog straight into boiling water, that frog will jump out of there. Ah, this is hot, this is hot. But if you put them in room temperature water, they'll go, ah. Oh. It's kind of nice. Make myself at home. 
swim a few laps, slowly start to raise the temperature. They're like, oh, this, this is good. Getting a sweat, this is a nice hot tub. You can literally boil the frog alive and it won't try to get out if you raise the temperature slowly because they just don't notice. They don't notice till they die and pass out. The Bible tells us there's pleasure in sin for a season. It's a great truth to know about the Bible. The Bible says that straight up front. Oh yeah, sin's fun. There's pleasure in it for a season. But the Bible also says, but the wages of sin is death. The idea is, yeah, it's fun for a while, but there's going to be a bill coming that's due, and you're not going to like what's on it. It'll always catch up to you. And so too often we, we dip a toe in sin and we say, oh, it's not, it's not that bad. Nothing happened. I did that, went there, hooked up with them, looked at that thing, watched that. Oh, nothing bad happened. Life just went on. Guess I'll just get in up to my waist. Nothing bad happened, and... Then we're up to our necks. And suddenly we're swimming around. I don't know why people say this is dangerous. There's nothing bad happening here. I don't, I don't feel any problem. Unaware that the temperature is rising and sin is getting a greater and greater grip on our lives. Unaware that the future consequences are piling up. And it's not that there's no danger. It's just that we're losing sensitivity. We're losing sensitivity. So that even when someone says, hey, I don't know if you know this, but you're boiling to death. We go, what are you talking about? You just want me to get out of this hot tub, which is so much fun. No, you're, you're boiling to death. Get out of here. You just lost your sensitivity. That's what's happening. Remember this. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. And there's a big difference there. God forbids the things that he knows will hurt us and damage us. God doesn't just arbitrarily say, hey, that looks kind of fun. That's sin. Uh, people also enjoy doing that. That's sin too. It's not bad because it's forbidden. God says, hey, don't do that because I'm God and I know where that leads. I know what that brings about in your life. Don't do that. He forbids it because it's bad. All sin is forgiven, but the natural consequences can linger like the stench of dead frogs for a long, long time. And your heavenly father doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want that for me either. Galatians 6, 7, hang with me, we're almost done here. Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. In other words, don't think you can mock God by ignoring everything in his word making bad decisions, living in sin, and not have the consequences come back around. God says you're sowing bad seed and there's gonna be a harvest one day. And you can't sow destructive seed in your life all week and then come to church and say, God, give me a crop failure, Jesus. Can't do it, can't do it. He'll say, oh, I forgive you, absolutely. But you're not freed from the natural consequences. If you need to repent, Repent today, not tomorrow. You will never meet a believer who has this testimony. Oh yeah, I was, I was involved in a serious sin one time and I gotta tell you, here's my tip, having gone through that. Just stick in it for another week or so. Just milk it, really you know, enjoy it for that last few times. Don't rush out of it too quickly. You will never meet a believer with that testimony. You'll only meet a believer with the testimony who says, I wish I wish I had repented sooner. I wish I had turned to the Lord sooner. I wish I hadn't wasted those years. I wish I hadn't done and caused that damage to my relationships. That's the only testimony you'll find. You're never gonna meet a believer who will say, hey man, best decision I ever made, not giving up that sin too early, you know what I mean? Never gonna meet that believer, not gonna happen. With that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you as always for the wisdom of your word. Thank you for the truth of your word that leads us and points us to life. Father, thank you that because you love us, because you are our heavenly father, you're not trying to keep us away from pleasure or fun, Lord. You are trying to give us life that is meaningful and satisfying and full of wholeness and good things and joy and peace. That's what you want for us, Lord. And Father, I pray 
that we would all have the wisdom just from the experience of the lives we've lived thus far to recognize that your paths lead to life. Your ways lead to life. And as your word says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. And so, Father, we just confess one more time that you are wiser than we are, that your ways are better than our ways. Help us to walk in them, Lord. Help us to lead our families in them. Help us to lead our children in them, Lord to walk in your ways and to honor you and experience the life you have for us. And Father, I pray simply if there's anyone here wrestling with a sin that they should not be, that you're calling them to give up, Father, would you speak so clearly right now in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we ask, would you convict us so intensely that we would deal with it right now? That whatever we need to go home and do, whatever conversation we need to have, whatever practical changes we need to make, we would do it. That we would not be like Pharaoh who says, I'll, I'll deal with it tomorrow. Not this time. Lord, help us to be wiser than that. And Lord, set free any among us, Lord, who are enslaved to sin right now in any area. In Jesus' name. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.